George's Bank scallops are now at Bonefish Grill. The George's Bank off the coast of New England is known for its amazing sea scallops, and Bonefish prepares them just right. Grilled to perfection over a wood fire and served atop creamy Parmesan risotto. And start the night off with our new handcrafted happy hour every day from 4 to 6.30. Enjoy signature cocktails like our tropical tiki martini for just $5, and new bar bites like ahi tuna poke are just $6. So come in tonight and discover what's new at Bonefish Grill. Welcome to Crime Wire, a program dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved crimes and educating the public about various types of crimes and how to avoid becoming a victim. If you'd like to submit a case to Crime Wire or suggest a topic for a future show, please email us at thenewcrimewire at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook at The New Crime Wire. My name is Denny Griffin, and on today's show, my co-host Delilah Jones and I are joined by Michelle Barton to discuss the April 22, 2012 death of her 19-year-old son, Tanner, while he was visiting a friend's house. The cause of Tanner's death was ruled positional asphyxia. Also with us today is Tara. She's the intern coordinator at the nonprofit organization Families of Homicide Victims and Missing Persons. In addition to her volunteer work, Tara is in the process of constructing a magazine that will shine reality and awareness on cold cases. Michelle and Tara, welcome to CrimeWire. Good, Good morning. Thanks for having us. Uh, Michelle, let me begin with you, and I'd like you to tell us uh, about Tanner and what was going on in his life, uh, generally speaking, in, in April of 2012? Okay, um, thank you. Um, Tanner, um, he was a freshman um, at Marion University in Indianapolis, Indiana. He played football. He was there on a the scholarship. Uh, he made the dean's list that freshman his first semester, and he was set to make it um, actually his second semester as well. Um, Ron Tanner, he just, you know, he was always busy, always, you know, helping other people. He, um, you know, he, he was just full of life. You know, he was one of those kids that was always smiling. Um, he was the first one to offer any help anytime anybody needed anything. Tanner was there. You know, he just, he's just one of those special kids that, you know, you just miss. You just miss having him here. Did, uh, did Tanner have a girlfriend? Yes, yes, he had a girlfriend, Micah. Um, they were dating for about a year. Um, but they've been dating on and off for several years, but at that point he was dating Micah. Um, you know, he they were a great couple together. They were so fun, um, always laughing together. Um, yeah, just a lot of fun. Now, let's turn to the night of April 21st of uh, 2012. Could you uh, tell us what uh, Tanner's activities were on that night? Uh, yes. Tanner had come home from college. Um, he'd been working on a term paper, so he was, you know, very retired. He came home, um, went to sleep for a while, got up, and we had dinner. Um, at that point, we knew he was going to go to Purdue University with his girlfriend party, her first party. So he was going to, you know, make sure she was okay, so he was going to go. Um, but we found out later he didn't. He ended up going to the movies in town and let her go by herself with her girlfriend. Um, but he was going to be, you know, there in case she needed him, so he would be on call, basically. Um, he went to the movies. Um, at 9 o'clock, he went to, um, out to Marcus Salazar's home. Um, that's the house where he had passed at. It was his good friend. They had invited him earlier in the week <clears throat> and on that day as well. And um, they wanted you know, just come on out there having a small party, and they invited him. And, you know, then he, at that point, I, I this was going through Tanner's phone, so I'd, I'd received his phone, and I'd gotten, you know, the text from that. And so he wasn't going to go, but then he messaged Marcus and said, hey, can I still come out? The invite's still open. He said, yeah, come on out. So about 9 o'clock, Tanner would have gotten there. 
And we know at 9, he was out there for a while. At 12 o'clock, he decided, um, and by witnesses' statements as well, we know that he was there with Marcus Salazar. He, Marcus Salazar, Michaela Salazar, and there was a friend of Michaela's. We don't know. She's unidentified. Um, I, I have... I believe I know who she is, but we don't have that, you know, solid yet. Um, but they had gone to the donut shop. It was a popular place where all the kids go. And I guess there was a dance or football or some sort of spring dance, and all the kids, it was a crazy busy. Um, so they left. They got home at 1.57, <clears throat> excuse me, that morning because there was a phone. There was a picture of Tanner on the phone that he'd sent um, that Jane, my daughter had gotten. It was him going up the steps. Um, at 2.07 to 2.11, his girlfriend had called him, letting him know that she was safe and, um, you know, at the dorm with her friend. And then sometime after that, Tanner collapsed. Um, we know Tanner hadn't consumed much alcohol. His BAC blood alcohol level was 0.06. <clears throat> and with Tanner's size, he was 350, 6'3". Um, it, it would have been equivalent to like a beer or a couple shots for him. So we know he he did not party that night, um, and that's all we know. We know that um, at that point, that's what we know. We received a phone call from Tanner's best friend saying that he'd passed. This is Cooney, whose dad just so happened to be out there that night and um, was the first one called back to the scene or called by – they called him before 911. Actually, there was a slew of people called before 911, um, I guess Carol Linsku, the mom that was at the house or owned the house, she was called before nine one one. Before nine one one, Todd Cooney was called before nine one one. Sorry, I'm, I'm getting these words out right. And then um, they called Tommy Cooney before nine one one. Myself, and then all that before nine one one was called. So and nine one one was not called till nine twenty four. They said their phone call started around eight thirty telling everybody. So we know that they're hiding something. So uh, if I'm understanding you correctly, before 911 was called, there were uh, several phone calls made to other people uh, yes. ad- advising people that something had happened, uh, something mm-hmm. had gone wrong. And then uh, you believe that after these other people were notified of the situation at that point, 911 was called and help was requested? Yes, um, no help. They they said he was unresponsive. Um, we don't know exactly um, exactly what they had said. We, I, we don't have the phone the phone call in for 911 yet. So, um, but, ah, sorry. <laughs> sorry, my, my cut went on. Um, yeah, so we know that it was requested um, at 924. We know that um, phone call started at 830, which put um, two Carolyns to Todd Cooney. Carolyn Skoog and Todd Cooney both, um, Dr. Todd Cooney was there. He's a vet, veterinarian. Um, that's who we believe is responsible for Tanner's death. And when he was called um, at 830, you know, he made it seem it was so casual. When we actually believe the phone call started around 7 a.m., because that's when Carol Linskoog said that she had made contact with Todd. Well, Todd, Todd Cooney said that he made contact with her. And you've you've done quite a bit of uh, inquiry into this, and you've obtained, uh, I believe, some statements from the various uh, the people and attendees uh, who were at the house that night. Yes, yes, I was able to actually get Tanner's case file. Um, I was fortunate enough to get all of Tanner's case file, the, the statements. Um, I've gone through all their statements. Um, it's, we were told, um, actually, we were told that they were all lying. We were told that Tanner's death was highly suspicious, that somebody did something to Tanner. Um, we know that the detective told us when um, he walked into the home, he said he knew instantly that they had already formulated a uh, um, story. And... Like he said, he goes, I did not believe a one of them. He said, Michelle, every single one of them was lying. This so, was yes. a, a police officer that told you that? Yes, it was the, the first detective on Tanner's case. 
Okay, uh, perhaps before we <clears throat> get to your theory of the case and, and Mr. Cooney's uh, involvement, um, once 911 was called, uh, did the police respond? Did they, they sent uh, a, a team or a detective uh, to the residence? Um, I know from what we've seen, the first responders, so there was police officers and um, police officers and um, the emergency um, vehicle was there. Um, and after that, I don't know exactly who all was there, but they did respond. Um, and I don't, I don't recall what time they said they'd gotten there. But yes, they did. They did send someone right out. And were you? Uh... Did you interact with the uh, the officers or the uh, emergency medical people at all yourself? No, they told us we were not. To, it, it was a crime scene at that point. We drove out there. Um, we were we were out there um, a little after ten, I do believe it was, or right before it. And um, there was a crime scene tape all around the front of the house, and because it's a, it's a quite a long driveway. And we were out there, and we even asked the officer if we could go up, and he said, no, no, you cannot. I said, I kept telling my son's up there, you know, I I want to go to my son. And and he said, no, ma'am, you cannot. You stay right here. And, and I said, or I did, or my husband, I don't recall. I said, what are you going to do, shoot us? If we go up there, and he said, ma'am, I'll do what I got to do. So that was our interaction on that day at that time. Okay, then. So the the scene, at least at that point, was being treated as a crime scene. Yes, yes. And when we pulled up, they were all, all of them were lined out in front of the home, um, within ten to fifteen feet apart. Um, everybody was at the house. Um, they were told they were not permitted to talk. Um, I know Detective Shirey said he, he separated them because he knew that, like he said, they had formulated a, a story and he didn't want them to adding any more. They lined them up and. And then they took them down in separate police cars. So the detective told you that, in his opinion, uh, the the version of events that he was getting by the by the people who were there uh, had been uh, rehearsed. Yes, yes, and you could tell in the statements it has been, you know, it had been rehearsed. Okay, now. I mentioned in the opening that Tanner's death was ruled as positional asphyxia. Yes. Uh, uh, and, and perhaps we should bring uh, Tara in at this point. Tara, are you familiar with the uh, reading autopsy reports and that type of thing? Well, I've been recently familiarizing myself, so I want to say, yeah, I have some experience. <laughs> Um, okay. Yes, like you said. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to. Would you explain to the listeners, please, if if you know, what does positional asphyxia mean? So, <clears throat> positional asphyxia is when um, you, your body c- cannot get breath. So, pretty much as um, as a human, when you're in a position where you're not, your airway's not open like that your body automatically repositions. Our bodies are really phenomenal to do that for us. But unfortunately, when if, if your body doesn't do that natural uh, change, uh, it, it's because of something is preventing it. Something, um, if you were, let's say, like really intoxicated, if something's in your system that's literally not allowing your body to make those automatic movements. So they also... They also compare this to what's called SIDS for children when, you know, as a child, their, their bodies don't reposition themselves. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it's clear that something was preventing him from repositioning his, his own body to, to breathe normally. Um, and, that, I mean, that's not, that, that brings me to the next part, which that's not natural. That's not normal. Um, like you said, they did rule it you know, the cause of the position of asphyxia. However, the manner was ruled natural, which is really, it's not, I mean, it's not natural. It, it's not. Um, I did reach out to professionals about this also. I mean, this is just my opinion. This is a, 
this is a, a lot of people's opinions about this. Um, there's five different ways that someone could pass away. Um, there's homicide, there's suicide, there's natural, there's accidental, and there's undetermined. Beans how Tanner was a 19-year-old healthy kid. He had no history of seizures. There's no way that this could possibly be a natural death. And, you know, that's a, that's a big thing right now. Um, you know, with, there, there were many signs of overdose showing, in, in, especially in my opinion. Um, in one of the statements, it was said that, you know, when he collapsed, he immediately started to make a snoring noise. This could, you know, uh, some people would know this snoring noise as what's called a death rattle. Um, he was struggling to breathe. I mean, that's what that snoring noise usually represented in this, you know, in this scenario. So, you know, like I said, that it's, it, you know, Michelle and her family have a right to know what was in his system that could possibly cause his body to not reposition himself automatically. Something else had to be responsible for that. And, you know, like Michelle said, the toxicology came back. You know, it, it showed nothing else in his system. That you know, like she said, the, the BAC level was 0.06. Um, you know, there, there, there's something missing from there. And that's why, you know, we believe that we're certain that something else was in his system that did not come up in the toxicology. And there are things out there that don't come up in a general toxicology. So this is... You know, this is why we believe this. Now, uh, can there be additional testing done to try to find this missing uh, component that, that everyone seems to believe was present? There had to be something else. Um, are more tests going to be run, or can more tests be run to try to find this thing? Do you go ahead. right now? Go well, ahead, Tara. Go ahead. Do you want to? Yeah, you went. Yeah, Michelle. <laughs> I'll, I'll, no, I'll you, you. you're the one. Yeah, um, we are. Tr- we tried. Um, we tried from the beginning. Um, I researched um, Dr. Todd Cooney, and this is what this kind of leads it all in together. Had lost his license for seven years. He was addicted to a drug called ketamine. Um, ketamine, if ingested orally, becomes a paralytic agent, um, just like you know what happened to Tanner. Well, Todd Cooney was there the night. Todd Cooney was there, called first before 911. Um, Todd Cooney lawyered up that morning. So he's made himself suspicious. So um, a few months after Tanner passed, um, somebody who used to work with him contacted me and said that they need to sit me down and tell me everything they know about him. Um, Had I known this man overdosed on ketamine, um, they found him unresponsive with a needle in his neck um, years ago. Um, So... We asked, and I begged, and after I found that out, I went to the detectives. I went to the coroner, and I begged them. I said, look for ketamine. I said, look what it does, and look at Tanner. I said, and and then you have Todd Cooney lawyering up. I said, please, and they wouldn't. They told me. They said, no, we we trust the lab that we sent this to, and I said, but it missed something. Something's missing. Look for this drug, and for two years, I um, tried, and I've tried so just recently, Tara has been trying, so I'll let her explain to her to you what... Um... Just to, to throw on to that, ketamine, for example, is one of those drugs that I was talking about that does not show up in a general toxicology. That specific drug needs to be... Uh, you need to request that to be specifically tested for. So it makes sense that if the, it's, it's a... It's a it's a possible puzzle piece to what we're missing. Um, it could very well it's very likely that it could be ketamine that's the missing link, because like I said, it would not come up in a toxicology report without specific requests for it. Um, mm-hmm. I did we did try like Michelle said, um, you know we've been trying to get another toxicology sent out, and I mean to, to be honest with you, I, it. <laughs> It doesn't seem like they're going to willingly do one. Um, I did try to contact uh, some people, and I, I, the the coroner doesn't really want to talk to me. He um, he had a lawyer send me a, a letter in response to my me asking if it's possible 
that they would do another uh, toxicology test. And they, you know, they don't want to do this um, unless the police ask for it. So uh, (laughs) is that how you like? But it's, um, so no, to answer your question, it's still something we're, you know, working on. And that's okay. That's okay. We kind of assumed it would, we kind of assumed this wasn't going to be easy from the get-go. So we're we're not really shocked, I want to say. Do the the police have an attitude about requesting from the coroner, requesting that the coroner do uh, the additional testing or no? Um, He did with me and with Tara. Yeah, Tara had just recently um, reached out to the very first investigator, um, Detective Shirey, and um, and he, he, you know, she, you could go ahead with this because Tara was the one who was on the phone, so. Yeah, I mean, just to be blunt, he he can't talk to me. Yeah. Yeah, they can't. They and won't talk. Is, is the police uh, investigation, is there an ongoing investigation? Do they consider this an accidental thing where, they, where they're not investigating, that they don't see a crime here? Or what is the status of the case as far as the police are concerned? Um, well, right now we know um, they told us it's an open criminal investigation, but okay. I, they're not investigating because they've, you know, I've given them um, every, I mean, I've investigated this. I've given them every name with contact information and they won't, they don't follow up. Just like I gave them Tanner's girlfriend's phone number. I said, here, I said, and I called her myself and I this is the very last person to ever speak to Tanner alive outside of that home within minutes of him collapsing. You know, she said he sounded stone cold sober, Michelle. It was, there was a lot of rambunctiousness going on. It sounded like a party. Um, that's not what she said in her statement. And, um, but I gave that to the detective and, you know, he's never, they've never reached out to her. I messaged her about a, a year and a half ago. And um, almost two years ago, again, um, I messaged her a couple times throughout that time, and I said, have they yet? Because we had gotten a new investigator on Tanner's case. And um, I gave him all the contact information, and she said, no, Michelle, nobody's reached out to me. So they're not, they're not investigating. They, they just, they're just holding the case open, and that's all they're doing. Um, yeah, and, and that's right. <laughs> yeah. When, yeah. In the situation like this where you are, um, well, this is my word, not necessarily yours, but where you mm-hmm. have some reservations or dissatisfaction with the uh, with the way the investigation is being handled, it, does the police department provide you with any uh, alternative? Uh, in other words, can you could you go over this detective's head to his superior? And express your concerns, and perhaps either get a new detective assigned, or, or get uh, get some movement that way. Um, yes, I did um, reach out. My family did. Um, we reached out to the prosecutor's office two years ago. Um, I wrote down 32 pages of questions, and these are questions, concerns, um, contact information for all witnesses, people. Hey, look into these. And blah, blah, blah. I was here in Texas, so my family and our family advocate at that time sat down with Tower County Prosecutor um, Mark McCann, and he goes, sit down, we'll sit down, we'll go over all your questions. And when they were done, he said, okay, now I'm going to take this to the Sheriff's Department, and I will get every single question of yours answered. I'm going to sit down with Sheriff Rogers, who is the, you know, of course, the Sheriff Rogers, and um I'll sit down with him and the detective, and then we'll get back all your information, anything you needed. And so that was, I think, February of 2015. By May of 2015, I had called at least six times, and he would not return my calls. My family called and emailed him several times. Um, Prosecutor McCann would not um, return any of our calls, but then when we requested outside agencies to come in and sent him, you know, a release of information form, he immediately got back with us and sent a letter and saying they no longer will be speaking to us or anyone, um, any other agency <clears throat> about Tanner's death. So they're not what speaking the, to us as well. 
what yeah, uh, what type, I mean, types of agencies did you bring in or did you uh, ask to uh, help on your side? Um, well, the Indiana State Police, um, we asked if we could turn it over to them. Um, we've had John Lieberman, um, Derek Van Lucien. We've had um, uh, several other smaller um, um, like investigator type people um, that would would be doing this non-profit type thing, and they refused. So, um, like I said, they turned that letter over to us. But we had I have a detective on the Indiana State Police who said he would take the case, but it's not his position to manhandle them to get the case put in his possession. And when um, we did finally, well, my sister and um, family advocate they asked him, asked Prosecutor McCann if they could turn it over to Indiana State Police. And he goes, no, at this time, we're just going to go ahead and hold on to this. We asked if we could take it to the um, Kokomo police. Um, they just they said they just are going to hold on to it. So to me, you know, it's I, something they're hiding. Let me yeah. just uh, mention here, it sounds like you have a situation similar to uh, what I've encountered in New York State. Uh, the New York State police are the uh, the big agency. They're the obviously have jurisdiction anywhere within the state. Um, mm-hmm. And then you go down to your county agencies and city agencies and townships and so forth. Uh, well, the state police can go anywhere and, and law, obviously law enforcement. And mm-hmm. when I tried to uh, a couple of years ago get a case – into the hands of the state police that the um, the mother of the deceased person and I were of the opinion that the the county sheriff who was handling the case was not was not up to speed and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and felt that there could could very well be a break in the case if somebody that seemed a little more aggressive um, would take over and when we talked to the New York State police they said well technically you're right we can work virtually any case we have jurisdiction statewide so that was not an issue but uh, basically from a political correctness point of view they would not get involved unless they were asked by the district attorney for that county or the handling police agency, in this case the county sheriff's department, to come in either as an assist agency or to actually take over the investigation. And very similar uh, to what you're telling me, the district attorney in that particular county said, oh, no, you know, there's no reason for us. we got a very competent sheriff's department here. Uh, we're mm-hmm. not going to pass it on, and, and, you know, we're just not going to do it. So... Um, even though they have the legal um, uh, ability as far as jurisdiction goes to do things, you're into the political correctness end of it. And uh, they, the the investigating agency that currently has the case or the prosecutor has to make the decision to bring in uh, or turn over to uh, another agency. It sounds... Uh, that you've encountered something maybe a little bit similar to that. Yes, that's ex- yes, exactly. That's exactly that's our story. And we even asked for a new detective, and they put a new detective on the case, and he's yet to do anything. You know, you just get all this. Oh, we're going to do this. We're going to do that. Um, and this detective, it's still sitting in, you know, on somebody's desk. So we've tried. We've exhausted. Ever. I don't even know what else to do. I um, mean, like um, when. Tara said that she'd received a, a letter back from the county coroner. It actually came from, because Kokomo is so small, we don't have a district attorney. We have a, um, a county attorney. Um, it actually came from the county attorney. From you know, So they're using their attorney to keep us. They just don't want us to know what went on. They just don't want to help us. Now, yeah, I think when, that's a good uh, way to put it. They're, they're not, it's very clear that they either will not or are not able to be helpful. <laughs> yes. And, of yes. course, the the uh, I, I think it's natural that uh, 
a lack of cooperation, a lack a lack of openness, uh, or what appears to be a lack of openness, uh, adds fuel to the to the thoughts that there's something else going on, that there's you a know cover a up. cover up, if you will, or mm-hmm. whatever. But uh, yeah, I think I think those those things feed to the uh, to the idea that that maybe you're not getting the whole story. Yes. Um, I, I truly believe that. Um, we know that um, these people have friends on the agency, on the sheriff's department. They're, they have friends in the, um, the you know, firemen. They have county county official friends. So, you know, the, the Linscoops do. So, you know, is it are they protecting them? You know, did somebody say, hey, I, you owe me a favor? Because it still boggles my mind that you're going to tell us that my son's death is highly – I mean, the coroner – the coroner, the um, the coroner, the investigator, and the uh, medical examiner all um, sat us down in a room and said, in all their in all their combined years, they have never seen a healthy 19 year old just die for no reason. And they said um, his death's highly suspicious. Somebody did something to him, but yet they marked Tanner's death natural. They haven't closed uh, the case. But they marked it natural. Let Let me ask you this, uh, uh, Michelle. Uh, how How did you uh, hook up with Tara? Did that Did that come about? Did you contact the families of homicide victims and missing persons, or just how did that work out? Um, yes, I actually um, a friend of mine um, is, sent her case to Robert Wells. And um, they're looking at her case as well. And um, but she says, reach out to Robert Wells. He is the founder of this. Look at look him up and just send your case. So I sent my case into our Tanner's case into Robert Wells. Asked him to help us. Um, of course, he took Tanner's case and he put um, Tara on. Um, she's the beginning of the process. So that's how we um, we got we got fortunate. We are so blessed and lucky to have this organization helping us. So, it was, yeah, we just, I reached out. And Tara, just for the, for the sake of the listeners, can you explain what kind of credentials do you have as far as what it is that you do if you're, if you're reading autopsy reports or, um, you know, uh, con- conversing with authorities? What what do you do in real life, I guess, is what I'm trying to say in a roundabout way. Can you explain that? Yeah, I'll go into a, a little bit, if that's okay. Um, so like Denny said in the beginning, I am I have experience, aside uh, from uh, volunteering with FOVAMP, because I'm working on um, a magazine. that So I am, you know, in the state of Colorado, the um, autopsy reports are public record. So that's why I have um, – in, in Indiana, they're not. I did learn that <laughs> the hard way. But um, the – so some of my experience does come from, you know, because I'm trying to put together a magazine that I want to – you know, I want people to know of, you know, what what happens out there, what the – you know, what, what type of horrors are out there. Um, there's, you know, a lot of cold cases, especially in Colorado. Um, so a lot of my experience – I want to say, uh, has come from my own private research for that. Um, as far as FOVAMP, um, I am newer with the, with the organization, but they are great, just like Michelle was saying. Um, we are, you know, we're advocates for people, exactly what the name says, for, you know, co-victims or families of, you know, homicide victims and missing persons. So um, we, you know, we try to help as much as we can. We try to, you know, like um, – just to give you uh, specifics, one of our of FOVAM's biggest things is to trying to have a good path of communication between co-victims or the the victims' families and law enforcement. It's a very a very touchy subject, and in that's one of the biggest accomplishments I feel that FOVAM has made um, with that. So that's one of our I want to say our biggest goals that they. I'm not. I can't take responsibility for that, but um, the organization has certainly. I want to say has succeeded in doing that. Um, and yeah, I mean, we just we try to just help out as much as possible, whatever um, we can do. 
we, you know, in as, you know, being advocates, of course. Does that kind of answer that for you? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> so, yeah, so you're, you act in, in an advocacy capacity and, and volunteer. And it's it's wonderful that we have people like you that are able to do that and, and kind of fill in the gap for families. Um, and um, I think you yes, explained absolutely. it quite well. Thank you. Oh, of course. Thank you. <laughs> And it, it seems what uh, Tara just said uh, applies certainly in Michelle's case because the communications uh, between Michelle and her family and the uh, the police seems to uh, uh, have broken down somewhat. Yes, yes, they, it definitely has. Um, like I said, the um, prosecutor said that we're, he will no longer be contacting our we will not be allowed to speak with them in regards to Tanner's case and or any outside agency. Um, the last email I received from the detective on Tanner's case, I literally was so angry I never responded back. Just some of the things he said, it just showed where his where he drew the line in the sand and what side he's standing on. Um, so I'm it's, it's there's no communication. I truly believe that they do not want Tanner's death to be investigated. Let's go back to Uh, this veterinarian for just one second, if you would. Um, Let me get this straight. He He was at this party, is that correct? Yes, yes. He's very good friends with that family. Okay, so yes, it wasn't was, necessarily yeah. that he was with the kids, so to speak. Um, I'm assuming that he was a little bit older than most of the kids that were at the party. Um, yes, he was. Well, he's fifty some. He's fifty some years of age. So, yeah, he's quite and, a bit older. He's he's friends with yeah. uh, Carolyn Skoog. Um, he and Carol are now married. If that tells you how good of friends they are. <laughs> Okay. So All right. They yeah. Her and her husband had gotten a divorce, and now she's married to Dr. Todd Cooney. Okay. So basically, he was just there as a guest of the family. Yes. Mm-hmm. Do you know what type of any sort of interaction that he had with your son? Well, his son. Um, I'm not that night. I don't know. I'm sure he was very nice. You know, they cordial because his son and my son are were best friends. I mean, they. It, you know, it was Tanner and Tommy, no matter what. I mean, it was always those two were always together. So our boys were best friends. Um, so I'm assuming he would have, you know, been, you know, joking around with Tanner or what have you. And was his son also there? No, no not that we know of. Um, I see. Not, not that I know of. But I know that Tanner did take a picture and send it to Tommy that night. I'm assuming he wasn't. Um, there's a picture that shows um, how much Tanner, what alcohol he had been drinking. I guess Tanner took a picture and sent it to Tommy. And um, when we did get Tanner's phone back, that, that picture had been deleted. Um, Tommy showed that picture to, because he was there for the week of Tanner's, um, you know, that week he was helping Jeff with um, Paul Bearers and all that stuff. So, he actually showed the picture to my husband and showed it to our family advocate. It's our family friend, but she was our advocate, um, family spokesperson. And um, they both seen it. And we were waiting to get Tanner's phone back, and that picture had been deleted. So we don't know if the family deleted it or the police deleted it. Um, I very much so doubt Tanner would have deleted it. Where's the picture now? Is it still on Tommy's phone, or did you get a copy of it? No, we didn't. It was that week. We didn't even think, you know, you just mm-hmm. you don't think. There's no thinking that week. So, um, no, I don't know where the phone. I'm sure they can take Tanner's phone and retrieve. There's, I know that they can retrieve stuff off of phones that have been deleted. And I, I know that there's people that can do that. We'll just, it's one of those things we have to try to find somebody to do. <clears throat> Michelle, you said that you had uh, a theory about what you believe took place uh, the night of the 21st and 22nd. Would you care to share that? 
Uh, yes, I I believe um, after you know after Tanner had gotten there, they all went to get donuts. I believe, and this is my own personal uh, you know belief here, that Todd and Carol Linsku left with um, with the kids. I think they took separate cars. I believe that Tanner went. All the kids went over because they're they kept saying they're you know they were on these long rides you know going for a ride out in the country or because we live in the country, so they they made these they made up a like a timeline their own timeline, um, but I don't believe it. I believe that they all met because Tanner had a different bottle of alcohol that was there. I believe they because they stopped at a liquor store with Todd and Carol uh, and got some alcohol right next door to the liquor store is where Todd Cooney's um, office, his, his business, his animal animal clinic is at. Um, and it's an apartment as well where he was staying. Uh, I believe they went there and either they got some alcohol there, and that's where I believe they got the alcohol. I believe that they got the drug from Todd Cooney either at that point or when Todd was leaving and they all separated. And I think because he keeps – we were told he keeps ketamine in his um, possession, um, in his truck, because he's a large animal vet. So um, I believe that that's when they had gotten it. I believe um, they provided it to Tanner. I don't know if they slipped it in his drink. They said, here, try this. Um, we know that once he collapsed, they, I believe Jeff Linskoog was there. I don't believe Carol. She told us, she told us that she was not there. Um, she told our family that. So I don't believe Carol was there or Todd Cooney. Um, I think they stayed over at that house. I believe that um, Jeff Linskoog was there. I believe he was the one who was brought down to that down to the basement and was, you know, knew Tanner had passed, um, was, you know, struggling. Um, I think he's the one who told, he was the one who told um, Michaela to sit on the bed, couch, and watch him. And then I think around 7 o'clock that morning, they got up, Jeff got up and went down and checked on Tanner, seeing he'd passed, took a picture, sent it to Todd and Carol, or Todd and Carol, yes. And I believe that's when all the action started. I believe that's when the phone call started. I believe they came, they because Tanner had been moved several times. We were told he was moved a couple, a couple times. So I believe they staged the crime scene to make it look like Tanner fell down the stairs. Um, they waited, and they all got their story straight, started calling people. There were kids who who um, lawyered up. Their parents lawyered them up, not the kids at that home <clears throat> that lived in that home, but there were kids outside of that home whose parents lawyered them up. So I'm assuming those parents obviously had already lawyered their kids up. I think kids that were there that night were taken home to their parents and told lawyer them up. Um and then the 911 was called. And since then, I believe that they have done nothing but lie and tell stories. And like I said, I think somebody owed somebody a favor in the sheriff's department. And I think that's why Tanner's case has not been investigated. So my theory. Um, Michelle, is, uh, I don't... I'm not a lawyer, and I'm not trying to play one. But uh, yeah, I understand. I I know there are cases. Um, uh, in in fact, the old uh, O.J. Simpson case, when he was uh, acquitted uh, in criminal of criminal charges, they eventually uh, uh, sued him civilly in a wrongful death case, and of course, they were able to get all the witnesses under oath and and so on and so forth. Is that? Uh, Anything that would be an option in your case if you wanted to move ahead uh, and try to get to the bottom of this on your own? Is, is there some mechanism where you could uh, perhaps a civil action for a wrongful death and, and, and get people, uh, you know, on the witness stand and uh, and have your attorney question them? Um, we did try this. Um, we did. We, we hired, we had a, a wrongful death attorney and the uh, defense attorney working Tanner's case. It was just a few months afterwards. Um, I mean, they tried. They kept, you know, they, well, I don't think they tried. But at the beginning, you know, they're like, oh, my goodness. You know, once they got Tanner's case file, which it took the detective nine months to get it to our, they kept to our attorneys. And 
they kept saying, man, we need your files, we need these files. Well, then as they started reading the files, they were telling us, oh, my goodness, this is just, this, it just, every, it's like a layer of an onion. You just peel it back and it just gets smellier and smellier. These people did something. And, you know, they were all hyping it up and trying to get to, you know, da-da-da-da-da. And they said, oh, yeah, we're going to, we'll sue. We'll, this is what we're going to do. And six months, about four, four to six months before um, the two-year, because you only have two years to file a wrongful death suit, um, they came back and said, well, we're sorry. There's nothing we can do unless there was an arrest. It's a weak case. So um, basically, yeah, we attempted that. Um, and that's what I kept telling them. I said, you know what? There is guilt here, and they've seen it, and they kept telling us they were guilty. They kept, you know, back and forth with us, and then out of the blue, they just came back and said, well, no, there's nothing we can do, unless there had been an arrest, and there was going to be an arrest, um, actually. They were going to arrest them for um, providing alcohol to a minor, but the sheriff's department decided not to because, they said there's more to this story, and we know that they did something to your son. So we're not going to arrest them because we don't want it to be double jeopardy. If we arrest them for alcohol, we can't arrest them for what really happened to your son. So, yeah, we to go back to that, yes, we did attempt that. We had attorneys. Um, yeah, I wish we could Some, have. Somebody, somebody help me out here. I, I, I. I always hear of double jeopardy re- regarding uh, murder cases and so forth, but for charging somebody with with providing alcohol, that I don't I don't know. I've I've never heard of that. That that would be a double jeopardy thing. In other words, if you I've charge them with providing alcohol, and later on you want to charge them with providing drugs, you couldn't do it because I don't know. That that's a new one to me. So you learn something new every day, I guess. <laughs> Well, or that's just the story they told us to shut us up. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I, don't know. I, I feel like they were trying to say that they, you know, wanted to fully investigate before making a move, before getting that day in court. And if you don't mind, I just have something to throw on that. I know that you said, you know, with the wrongful death suit, there is a time limit. I believe Michelle said two years. Just wanted to mm-hmm. throw this out there that with homicide, there's no time limit. I just, I feel comfortable just having that out there. There's no yeah. time limit on that. So. Just because, you know, something expired does not mean that's the only option. So that, you know, Good. just, yeah. Yeah, so, I, was, Michelle, I was hoping. Go ahead. Yes, go ahead. What 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 are your options now? Do you still, you know, a lot of the doors seem to be uh, getting closed on you. Uh, are there still some options available you think that could work? Oh, yes. I'm I'm very confident. I'm very confident in... And Tara and Robert, and um, I just feel that there's some doors that, that will be opening. Um, I know that, you know, there's things that we can have subpoenaed. There's things that we can do. Um, there's things that they can shut us up. I mean, they could attempt to shut us up, but they're not going to shut us up. You know, this is there's too much here. There's too, There's just too much on this case that we have proven and it shows that they aren't doing anything to help us. So, you know, they, they need to be held accountable as well. The sheriff's department needs to be held accountable for, for you know, the, for what is it, uh, um, anyways, for not investigating. You know, they, they've not done what they're supposed to do. You know, we pay our, our county taxes. We pay these people to help us. We've gotten nothing. But, like I said, we have um, – Robert Wells, we have um, Tara. We have people that are put in place now that I truly believe that can get some doors opened. Okay, we're time has flown here. We're just about out of time. Before we wrap up, I'd just like uh, to give uh, Michelle, you and Tara both an opportunity. If you have any information you want to give out, such as a website, a Facebook page, that type of thing, um, uh, why don't we go ahead with you uh, first, Michelle, and then we'll let Tara add anything she'd like. Okay, yes. We have, um, it's called Tanner's Voice, that's one word, tannersvoice.org, no apostrophe after Tanner, um, .org. Um, that's, it's still, um, it's under construction still somewhat, so not everything is there, but I do have a page called Tanner's Voice, two separate words, 
there's no apostrophe in the S. Tanner's voice. You'll see videos. You'll see um, radio interviews. There'll be all kinds of, um, there'll be information on that page. Um, and if you need to get a hold of me, my, my email is M-I-C, it's called McDoll4 at AOL, AOL.com, and that's M-I-C-D-O-L-L-4 at AOL.com. Um, if you have any information and you want to get a hold of me that way, that's just as well. So. Okay, thank yeah, you, Michelle. And and Ta- Tara? You said, oh, sorry. The second page you said is on Facebook. I just wanted to clarify that. Yes. Oh, yes. The first yes, page is the website. You. The second page is all, you can find it right on Facebook. And yes, I wanted to throw in about Crime Stoppers. Crime Stoppers is a nationwide organization, and they are amazing. They are not police officers. So you can, it, it's a great way of, if you have any information that you're too afraid to tell the police, you could anonymously enter tips to Crime Stoppers. Every state, um, most of the states have like their own organization. However, there is a, it doesn't matter which organization or, um, you know, which specific state you call, they will get it to the right people. So for Crime Stoppers, a very good number I have for them is 1-800-222-TIPS. That's T-I-P-S, 1-800-222-TIPS. You could also go to their website. The Colorado one is uh, N-O-C-O. Crimestoppers.com. It stands for Northern Colorado. So that's N O C O, Crimestoppers.com. And then the one for Central Indiana is Crimetips.org. Like I said, any Crime Stoppers organization you enter a tip into, no matter what state it's based out of, the coordinator will get it to the organization or the local agency. It's a great way that if you have a secret and you want to tell, they're great. They're great for that. So keep that in mind, please. Thank okay, you. thank you very much, Tara. And we're going to have to wrap it up right here. And Michelle and Tara, uh, thanks so much to both of you for being here and sharing uh, what is truly a tragic story. And thanks also to our listeners. And until next time, stay safe. Thank you. Thank you very much. are now at Bonefish Grill. The George's Bank off the coast of New England is known for its amazing sea scallops, and Bonefish prepares them just right. Grilled to perfection over a wood fire and served atop creamy Parmesan risotto. And start the night off with our new handcrafted happy hour every day from 4 to 6.30. Enjoy signature cocktails like our tropical tiki martini for just $5, and new bar bites like ahi tuna poke are just $6. So come in tonight and discover what's new at Bonefish Grill. George's Bank scallops are now at Bonefish Grill. The George's Bank off the coast of New England is known for its amazing sea scallops, and Bonefish prepares them just right. Grilled to perfection over a wood fire and served atop creamy Parmesan risotto. And start the night off with our new handcrafted happy hour every day from 4 to 6.30. Enjoy signature cocktails like our tropical tiki martini for just $5, and new bar bites like ahi tuna poke are just $6. So come in tonight and discover what's new at Bonefish Grill.